Hello, I'm Olivia Braffman and welcome to If She Can, I Can, the podcast that aims to edge all of us ambitious women that little bit closer to navigating how on earth we get the high-flying career we love and have kids without totally burning yourself out and challenges the role society thinks we're supposed to play in it all. How? By talking each week to inspiring women who have proven the statistic wrong and have done just that. Let's get into it. I am so thrilled to be joined by Baroness Roz Altman, an award-winning expert on all aspects of pensions and later life policy, from investment strategy to company pensions, state pension policy, retirement and social care. Former UK pensions minister and regular media commentator across TV, radio and online, Roz is maybe most famous as a champion for the rights of older people having spearheaded a multi-year campaign to force government to restore lost pensions to 140,000 victims of the company pension scandal. Wow. All of this while raising her three children. Incredible. Roz, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Liv. Thank you. Nice to be here. I want to start way back for you, Roz. What kind of upbringing did you have? And, you know, what did your parents do? What was life like for you growing up? Gosh, so uh, my father was a dentist, dental surgeon, and my mum both helped him, but she was also an artist and a model, a fashion designer. She did lots of different things. But when she had her children, she was mostly, while we were young, at home. You know, she would go in and help my dad as a dental nurse sometimes as well. And we had a very happy childhood in Wilsdon. Grandparents were also very close to us, so that was lovely. We went to a local primary school, so again, not lots of travelling. Lovely. What do you think your biggest, I guess, influences or role models might have been growing up that you think led you down to the career path that you chose? Was Was there anyone that you can put it down to that thought because of those people or that person, I was inspired down a particular route? I can honestly say that I can't think of anything that would have inspired me to go into pensions. (laughs) Nothing at all. It was never part of my plan. I had always, well, from into my teens and onwards, I had originally always thought that I wanted to do psychology. When I started studying psychology, I decided actually it probably wasn't for me and I changed to economics. (laughs) There was no history or background of any of that in my family. My mum wanted me to be a dentist, but I decided I didn't want to be a dentist. I can't cut up a dead fish, never mind a person. (laughs) That was completely out the window. But as far as values are concerned and work ethic, that definitely came from my parents. My father worked all hours. He was a very dedicated both to his patients and to the NHS. And my grandparents also worked very hard. You know, his parents came over with nothing. My both parents were refugees from Nazi persecution. And their parents came over here, gave up everything, started again with nothing and worked hard. And my grandparents lived above a shop in Tottenham, had outside toilets and, you know, like a little fire that they used to warm themselves. But by no means did they have a lavish lifestyle of any kind. 
but hard work kind of transcended what they did. Yeah, yeah, just decent people who believed in doing the right thing and who were very grateful always that this country took them in and gave them and their children a, a really good life. You've seen all of this kind of hard work from all the people around you. Pensions. So this is where you, your whole career has been sort of centred around, centred around this world. When you start your career as a young woman, I guess a pension feels like quite a far away thing. You know, it's not something necessarily front of mind, you know, when you're getting into work. How did you come to be in this world and ultimately build a career that is dedicated to it? Pure happenstance. It's just being in, in a certain place at a certain time. It was not planned, uh, I must confess. I don't know if that's something I would recommend to other people. I have been very fortunate in my career. I realise that. And I've loved most of the things that I've done. You know, it, it, it just worked out that way. I decided to study economics at university because I found the subject fascinating. Uh, I had done it for A-level. I was very interested in current affairs and, and social affairs as well. Then I was very lucky to get a scholarship, a Kennedy scholarship to go to Harvard after I'd done my first degree. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do career-wise, but I had thought of academia. I was pretty sure that I didn't want to be nine to five in an office, but I loved the academic exploratory work that we used to do and, and learning about new things. I always loved learning about new things. This scholarship, it was sort of one of six in the Commonwealth, I think it was, and it was such a privilege. It, it was just the most wonderful year to be surrounded by so many unbelievably brilliant people and unbelievably brilliant academics and lecturers and to live away from home for the first time for me because I, I stayed in London for uni. It was such an eye-opener and I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had thought of doing accountancy and I had a, a position lined up for after my year in America but while I was there one of my professors, the head of department of UCL, where I did my first degree, had moved to LSE and was looking for someone to help him doing research. And he wrote to me and asked if I might want to do some research for a PhD that he could get me sponsorship for. And the PhD work was on analysing pension data, which had been just released for the first time, incomes of older people, occupational pensions and how they help poverty among the elderly, all of those things. You know, in, in the late 1970s, it was a very, very new and unexplored topic. So he sort of handed me all of this on a plate with an academic teaching post alongside it. So I did some teaching as well. It all just fell in my lap. So I came home and I did my PhD on pensions. And again, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do afterwards. I had an academic career post lined up at Warwick University to do lecturing, which is what I thought I wanted to do. But I suddenly one day just thought, you know, if you were an economist, surely you need experience in the real world rather than just theory. The old joke, the economist finds something that's working in practice and then says, well, does it work in theory? So... Uh, I thought maybe I, before I do my academic career and continue with my research, I should get out into the real world. I'd also thought all the worst lecturers I had were the ones who'd never been in the real world. They'd just stayed in academia. Because economics is such a, 
a live subject and it's so much about what's happening in the world and, and, and all the things that affect everybody's lives. I applied for a few different things and, and I chose going to work at the investment department of the Prudential, which actually, as it turned out, was managing pension fund money. And I thought I would hate it, but I absolutely loved it. And I learned about analysing companies and putting portfolios together and and looking after long-term investments for uh, members of pension schemes. And that sounded actually quite good to me. And then I, I went off and started doing international investing. It, I started in 1981, and this was just after the UK had dropped all its exchange controls and the markets were opening up outside the UK. And suddenly I was asked to work in the international department looking at investment opportunities overseas. And these were markets that were booming and it was so exciting. There was so much going on. Markets that had been closed to us were suddenly opening up. UK investors knew a lot more than continental European investors, for example, about how to analyse markets and, and equities and, 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 you know, company data and so on. Gosh. And is one thing just sort of leading to another in terms of pursuing? And I think you're very humble in it just sort of fell on my lap, but there is clearly an ambition and a drive within you that has got you to where you are, because that certainly wouldn't have happened otherwise. Learning new things, exploring new things, uh, and going on to sort of think about what's next is, I think, always part of me. It was interesting that in the city in those days, you know, I was usually the only woman. And certainly when I went overseas on, you know, in continental Europe, which was the main markets that I started on because they were so underdeveloped, I was often the only woman in, in an, you know, a room of a few hundred men. And everybody assumed I was somebody's assistant or... I was recording or going to hand the microphone round. How did it make you feel being the only woman? Did it make you feel empowered or did it terrify you? What was the general feeling? Oh, initially I was absolutely petrified uh, and I was sort of trying to slink off into a corner. And I think after a while, I got to realise that it was an opportunity. Just try to make my own way. Uh, not asking men for help, but trying to be independent and think for myself. Uh, and that seemed to work. You know, I, I ended up doing really well. The performance of my funds was good. And I was headhunted to go to Chase. Now, that was very different in a way, because when you were in the city, in the Prue, the sort of state old British institutions, People didn't really take a woman seriously. I was actually asked to look after the continental European markets because nobody else was interested in doing it. And they thought they could, oh, yeah, just let that young girl do it. Doesn't matter because it, they were very much backwaters. The big markets were Far East, like Japan and also in America. And a woman wouldn't be left to do that. So as it happens, I ended up in the fastest growing area, which was great. And then I went over to Chase and... You know, American banks were much better. It was much more of a meritocracy. So even if you were a woman, it didn't matter. If you got the numbers, if you performed, it was fine. However old you were, whether or not you went to Oxbridge, which I didn't, uh, didn't matter. So that was, a, you know, a great springboard for me to really make a name for myself. Uh, and then I went off to do 
fund management. I was then again, a previous boss at the Prudential had moved to Rothschilds and wanted me to come and work there. So I did that. And then I went to NatWest. But then I, I was pregnant with my third child very quickly after my second. And I was having a most fantastic career in the city. But I had to do a lot of traveling and, you know, looking after overseas markets and looking after any kind of investment portfolio, even with a long term view, you do need to be on top of things day to day. And I just thought I need to take some time out to be with my young children. And that was after your third. So you're actually working incredibly hard for your across having your first two children. Yeah, my first was not a problem having just one at home. And in any case, my husband was studying at the time. So I had to go back to work, which was fine. I was I loved my job anyway. And I had, you know, mother in law, mother around and we got a nanny and it worked out fine. And and Stephen, our son, was a very, very easy child. You know, he was happy. And if, if I was there, he was happy to see me. If I went away, he was happy to say goodbye. He knew, knew I'd come back. Then I had a five and a half year gap, so a big gap. Then I had my daughter uh, and I arranged to work three days a week in the office and two days a week at home, which worked really well. Which now is the norm, but I guess at the time probably was not the norm at all. At that time, it was quite revolutionary. But I was still doing some traveling and, and you know, I, I had to do whatever I needed to do. But then I got pregnant almost straight away with my third one. We'd always said we wanted three or four children. And so it was wonderful. But I suddenly thought, I'm not going to have time for them. So I, I thought rather than taking maternity leave, which I knew I wasn't going to come back from, which I could have done, I just thought it's not fair. Why didn't you think you'd come back from maternity leave? Because I had decided, I made the decision, I was going, you know, the money didn't matter. I wanted to dedicate time for my little ones. Because you can't turn the clock back. You can't just be there for them later on. If you missed it, it's gone. Peddling back slightly, when you, you clearly wanted to start a family, you know, you had this brilliant career, you're making waves in the industry. You always wanted this family. Did you go into it knowing or wanting to be a working mother or... Did you go into it sort of seeing, well, I'll see how I feel and sort of continue as I am until it feels, you know? My parents brought me up always to believe that a woman should be able to look after herself, to have an independent life if she wanted and needed it. Uh, not being forced to, but, but hopefully finding a career that you really want to have. And something that maybe you could work with part time, which, of course, in the city, that isn't really possible. But um, that was why my mom wanted me to be a dentist, for example, because, you know, you, you can do that and combine that with children. Not, not so not not a problem. Did you take maternity leave for your first two? Oh, yes, I took. Well, I only took six weeks for, for Stephen. In those days, they didn't pay big maternity benefits for six months. That was that was a. Not the norm at the time. So it was six week maternity pay. And as I say, you know, we had no other income coming in. So I was happy to go back to work. Luckily, I was feeling fine. And Stephen was a very easy baby. It wasn't really a problem. And Paul was at home. He was studying. And we had a nanny. So the whole thing was fine. And I'd always thought that I would like to still be working. But at the time, I did things all the wrong way around because. None of my friends who had children in London worked. They all 
were at home looking after children. And that, that was tricky. Of course, people who weren't necessarily friends of mine in, in my circle, either colleagues who worked in, in the States, for example, uh, or people that I knew friendly in the city, there were women there who had worked and, and had children and had a nanny. But it wasn't the norm in my social circles. So it was difficult. Was there stigma around it for you? Did you feel like there was sort of some kind of judgment or anything because you had a slightly unconventional setup at home? Or was it something you were proud of? I think I didn't really worry. If somebody was going to judge me on that, well, then they either don't know me or don't like me for other reasons. So it wasn't something that bothered me so much. Indeed, when Paul and I got married, I kept my maiden name because my family name, Altman, and all that, all that side of the family was wiped out in the Second World War. My dad was an only child. My sister had already married and changed her name. So I was the last of our Altmans. And I was lucky that my husband, Paul, didn't mind if I stayed as Ros Altman. He wouldn't be Paul Altman, obviously, and he very much resists that. So, I mean, clearly it was just a huge part of your identity. So that was unconventional at the time. You know, a lot of, a lot of friends or, or my parents' friends particularly thought there was something very strange, but it meant something to me. No, I think that look, now it's much more common. Yes, and the children have, have both names. You know, they, they've got Altman-Richard as, as their surname. And I always thought they would decide later which one they wanted to keep. And they've ended up keeping the double barrel. So that's lovely for us. I want to go back to you after having your third and you kind of say, you know what, I'm just going to take a bit of a pause on my career and I'm going to focus on on the children. Did you ever worry? Because, you know, by that point, you've done a lot. You know, you've really built a name for yourself. Were you ever worried that having kids would impact where you might continue to get to in your career or, or not? Absolutely. I mean, that was that was the decision I had to make. I had to decide, was I willing to give up the career I loved? Because that was most likely what was going to happen. You know, it's, it's not easy and not normal to be able to get back in when you've taken time out like that. But I wanted to be honest and honourable, as it were, because I knew there had been quite a few women who had taken maternity leave. And, you know, they told me privately they weren't intending to come back. Uh, and they didn't come back, but they had the money anyway, which was fine. There was nothing uh, illegal about it at all. And of course, if God forbid anything had gone wrong with the birth, they would have come back. But I just didn't want to let down my colleague who had hired me. So I just said to him, look, I'm not coming back. I'm retiring. Nobody believed I wouldn't be back. They all thought that I would be crawling back, begging for my job again after a few weeks of being at home. How much time did you take off? I didn't start working paid work again until my little one was in full-time nursery. So it was about two, two and a half years. And it was really tough. Did you enjoy, you know, when you were sort of present there, you know, all of your time dedicated to the children? When you look back now, are you grateful for that time? Or do you look back thinking, well, in hindsight, it did hold me back or... 
How, how do you feel on reflection now? I would make the same decision, absolutely make the same decision again. Even though, you know, sometimes when I was at home and the two girls were screaming and I wanted to go to the loo and I couldn't even go to the loo. And then when sometimes they do things that you think, oh my gosh, did I, is that really what they think's right? I thought, would they have been better off with a nanny instilling different discipline into them or something? But, but you know, those are fleeting moments. Yeah. Uh, at least if there's any problems, that it's because of me. It was my input. I, I wanted to be there to instill values that I believed in, in them. And if they choose to, to follow, fine. If they don't, when they're grown up, well, at least I've done my best, as it were. And so I wanted to be there for them. Was part-time ever a consideration or did you, it seems like it was pretty all or nothing. Like, you know, I'm either full-time working or I'm full-time at home. Was there or could there have been a balance, do you think? Not when I had the two little ones. With 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 one little one at home and one at school, I, I, I think that would have been quite doable. But to have two little ones at home and try and work, no. I, d- I really don't think that would have been realistic. And also, you know, I'd be having to travel and there's no way Paul would have wanted to look after both little ones plus our older one as well. You know, I would have had to get two nannies. That would have been the way I could have done it and still kept working. Part-time in the city isn't really an option. So it would have been a career change anyway. Uh, and I knew that. Uh, and that was the decision. You know, it's one of those moments in life where you have to make a big choice. You stay with what you love. You know, sometimes I think now, well, I would have been so much better off financially if I'd stayed in the city. I was in the right place. It was, you know, all the colleagues that I worked with made a fortune. But in the end, I made the decision money was not going to drive my life or my family. As long, thank goodness, you know, we've got enough. We don't have a lavish lifestyle, but we're okay. And do we need luxury yachts and planes and massive estates? No, we don't. No, I love the fact that you made that decision because I think there's a lot of women that are at that pivotal stage in their career where they're having to make it. And it's sort of you wish you had a glass ball that could see what you could achieve coming out the other side. And in your case, you still went on to do so much incredible work. Again, you know, things just happened. When Emma, my little one, had started full-time nursery, one of my good friends from university, who was working at 3i, the investment company, in looking after venture capital, private equity uh, companies in the UK, knew I was at home and knew that I had done corporate analysis and was doing equity portfolios and investing and just called me up and you know because we kept in touch and, and said look we need an outside expert an independent person to come in and look at the companies in our portfolio and assess whether we're valuing them appropriately would you be interested it just happened and of course, it was right up my street. I have to time it around the children and I can't do every day. She said, that's fine. You tell us what, what hours. But I had to go into the office because a lot of the 
corporate information they had was confidential. I couldn't just take it home. So after I dropped the little ones at school, I would go in for a few hours to uh, Waterloo, be in the office, do the research, and then come home and pick them up. So that was brilliant. I did that for quite a while. And it was a nice consultancy assignment. And it started me off thinking, that's it, I'll do consultancy if I can. And so I did. I was lucky. I, I, I got more consultancy work. Then the boss, we were kind of equal colleagues, as it were. He was head of fixed income. I was head of equities, who I'd worked with at Chase, who was now at Gartmore heading up their fixed income. So he was the boss of that side of the investment business at, at a big city firm. His boss had just been asked by Gordon Brown to do a major study of how UK pension funds invest. Was Gordon Brown Prime Minister at the time? Gordon Brown was Chancellor. Oh, right, OK. This was in 1999. And the chap who was the boss of Gartmore had believed that he would have plenty of time to do it because Gartmore was in the process of, of negotiating to be bought out. But the deal fell through. So here he was, he'd signed up to do this big review, but still had a full-time role heading up Gartmore, which hadn't been sold. So my former colleague who I'd worked with called me up and said, look, my boss has got a big problem and is looking for someone who knows about pensions and investing to help him set up this big review for the Chancellor at the Treasury. Would you be interested? It's a casual phone call that, that you might get on a, on a traditional day. <laughs> and it was just so interesting for me. I said, yeah, sure. Because when you're doing consultancy assignments, you know, you, you, I, I didn't have a commitment as such to do a full-time role anywhere else. So I met with the guy the following day and I started work at the Treasury the Monday after. And that's how I got into working with politicians. I started off at the Treasury, then number 10, the policy unit there, uh, Tony Blair's chief economic advisor, met up with me in the course of the work that I was doing. And he liked some of the social policy stuff that I was working on as not just the pension stuff and, you know, how to help older people have a better life. And so I started chatting with him, went into number 10. I mean, you know, there's little me. Suddenly I'm what, what, marching through the gates of Downing Street, you know, first number 11, then at number 10. It was just quite surreal. And that's how I ended up working with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Unfortunately, the relationship between the two of them was so bad that having started as an advisor to Gordon Brown, or consulting with the Treasury, once I started working with number 10, I didn't realise I suddenly became persona non grata because I was working with Tony instead of Gordon now. And so the Treasury was not any longer very warm to me, which was a real shame. And it was my fascinating first glimpse into the life of politics rather than policy, which I didn't like. <laughs> Well, I just think it's incredible. And there's a lot of, you know, you say, it was amazing. I just got this call one day and this thing just sort of happened. But 
it's testament to you and the relationships you've built and the work that you've produced over the years that means you are the first person someone calls when they have an opportunity in and around you know, pensions or the policy. I've just been very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. My original career, when it was about working with pensions, and I used to go to a dinner party and somebody asked what you do, and I said, I work in pensions. It was the best conversation stopper, you know, like, <laughs> couldn't get away fast enough, nothing to say on that. Now, of course, it's very different. As soon as you say, I work on pensions, everybody wants to ask you a question about their pension. But that wasn't the case when I started, you know, it was most unusual. So, you know, if you happen to be in a field like the same with continental Europe, when, when I, I started off and ended up in somewhere which not many people were working in, it's much easier to get well known and get to the top than if you're in a place where everyone's already well established. It's very true. And I wonder if the fact that you're a woman doesn't seem to have held you back at all from any of these opportunities that came your way, you know, from once being the only woman in a room. Actually, that only woman was probably the one that that got the big phone calls later on. Well, there was definitely misogyny in the city in my early days. As a woman, nowadays, I think most women, my daughters, just would not put up with what we had to put up with. Never mind you were a professional woman or a fellow director, the men would still be behaving like schoolboys, I call it. But, you know, there was a lot of lewdness and suggestiveness and personal remarks and things that I just laughed off. You know, in those days, there wasn't an HR department to go and and complain to. You either made it clear to whoever had done that to you that that was not acceptable, or you put up with it. And if you didn't like it and it got too bad... You had to look for another job. Gosh, such a different time. But you didn't want to fall out with the chaps because they could badmouth you, you give you a bad name. And that was not good in the city. Uh, American was was better. Chase was definitely better. Uh, You know, if you were good at your job, you were respected. I do want to touch on when you started working with the government. There were a few times in your career where you very bravely campaigned often without a fee, to support the rights of older people. I've never been paid for my campaigning. Why did you feel, is brave the right word? I don't know, but confident enough to speak up. You could be stupid. You could, you could, you know, like the the yes minister. Well, that's very brave minister. Like, what a stupid idea. (laughs) Why did you feel it necessary to speak up? There was no one else to do it. That's why. You know, at the end of the day, I happened to be in a place where I understood what had gone wrong. I understood how wrong it was. And I also could see that it was the responsibility of government because I knew the history of how the pension schemes worked. I knew the history of of how the rules about pensions worked. And I knew that this wasn't just poor investment. People who didn't know those details, didn't understand the underlying details, were understandably quite happy to think, well, it was the trustee's fault or it was the investment manager's fault or it was just hard luck. Why would they ever expect that these things were guaranteed? Any of these types of rationales were used for other people to say, not my problem. I did want to ask a bit of a reflective one. You in my eyes have achieved so much. Pension minister, CB, House of Lords, you must be so proud of everything that you've achieved. 
when you look back my mother is very proud (laughs) I can imagine that too (laughs) would you do anything differently if you had your time again or do you look back and think gosh I did well the thing that I would do differently if I had my time again is mug up much more on politics if you're actually going to try and be a politician I had no idea I was so naive and ignorant about how politics works I was thrown into it I came in to the House of Lords as a minister knowing nothing about politics being always previously known as an independent thinker and an independent person and suddenly was thrust in to a snake pit, I would call it in some ways. It was at the time of the Brexit campaign. I knew all about policy, but I knew nothing about politics. You know, for me, politics was about getting good policy right. And I did not realise that that's actually not all you need to know. So I learnt the hard way that it's not easy And I learned a lot about how to behave politically that I never knew. And probably my life would not be any poorer if I had never known, but I do now know. It's a difficult environment, but I am just very thankful that I have had the opportunities to do so many interesting things. I hope that I've managed to help improve a lot of people's lives. I mean, I certainly know the campaign that I spearheaded and we eventually won, which was so, so hard. I mean, it ended up taking over my life. As you said, completely pro bono was so important to 140,000 families across the country who had been so wronged and who faced retirement having put their life savings into a pension scheme that they were told was safe and guaranteed with nothing from it. So, you know, I managed to get much of what they were promised back for them. That's something I will always be thankful for having the opportunity to do. And, you know, I've tried to steer pension policy and the public debate on other areas, you know, later life treating older people with dignity and respect and understanding that there are massive differences. There are some really poor pensioners, good people across the country who have looked after themselves, tried to be independent, tried to give back to society, do all the things we want to do. And they shouldn't be tarred with the same brushes as, you know, oh, extraordinarily wealthy pensioners who don't need state pensions and and who don't deserve to, to be looked after. You know, I've, I've tried to help steer the narrative of, of championing older people who don't tend to have a voice because, you know, when did you last see pensioners protesting uh, against things or, or demanding things? They tend to be much more placid and passive and expect that hopefully they will be looked after if they need it and want to be self-reliant as much as they possibly can. What a way to end Roz, thank you for all of the incredible work that you've done over the course of your career and for speaking up when other people can't or don't have a voice. It's incredibly inspirational, everything that you've done. And I know a lot of people will take a lot from hearing your story. So thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to leave me a quick review and subscribe. It helps us reach a bigger audience of women more than you know. And if there is an awesome individual who needs to share their story on this podcast, I would love to hear from you. My details are in the description below. I will see you next week.